Welcome to another episode of Murder, Myth, and Mystery. I'm one of your hosts, Eric, and I'm joined here today with Sarah. Hello. And Mary. Hello. How are you, girls? Fabulous. Good. Wow, we have fabulous. That didn't quite sound as fabulous as it as it probably is. I was just coming out of a yawn. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) fabulous. Yeah, and then we had we had Sarah's over enthusiastic. Good. So yeah. Okay, so we should have exchanged words. Right. right. Yeah. Good. I'm good. You're good. Fabulous. All right. Now, now we've gotten it right. Okay. Now we're all settled there. Eric, yeah. how are you? Oh man, I'm fabulous. I guess. No, I'm. I'm. <laughs> I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm living the dream. <laughs> all right. Every day. Every day. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to jump into my murder because I wrote this while. I was sick with COVID. Yeah. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. We don't really have anything to to go over. So yeah, that's fine. Let's go ahead and jump on in. So there is a trigger warning for abuse of a child. Oh. I know. You would think it's Sarah. I know. I know. (laughs) Jeez. Okay. Leon Gary Plouchet was born November 10th, 1945 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana to parents Charles and Anna Plouchet. Gary went on to serve in the U.S. Air Force and became a staff sergeant. When he retired, he returned to Baton Rouge and got a job as an equipment salesman and had another gig being a cameraman for the local news station. He married a lovely lady named June, and they had four children together, three boys and one girl. He even coached Little League Baseball. Basically, from everything I could find and read, he was a really cool guy and a great dad. Always had a smile on his face, helped stray animals, loved beer, loved crawfish, loved a good joke, but what he absolutely loved was his children, and he would do anything for them. Okay. In 1983, the Plachets enrolled their three boys in a local karate class taught by Jeffrey Doucette. Side note, it was also during this time that Gary and June were going through um, some marital issues and had separated. Oh, okay. okay. So Jeffrey, who I will refer to as Jeff, as did all the other articles, okay, Uh was a 24-year-old ex-Marine, and he lived in the dojo. Hmm. The team would go to tournaments from Long Beach to Miami, and 10-year-old, the couple's youngest son, even took home a trophy at the Fort Worth Pro-Am. Their mother, June, was impressed, and in July of 1983, she told a local newspaper reporter, and I quote, You wouldn't believe what this has done for my children, especially the youngest, who is a slow learner. His balance was unbelievably off. He couldn't throw a punch without falling down, and his coordination was not very good. Now he jumps ropes like a boxer. He's got good balance, and he remembers things when he couldn't before. Mm. Other children were quoted for the same article, and some of these quotes were, We have better manners. We look up to Jeff a lot. He tells us to treat adults with respect, so we do. He tells us not to fight with our parents. He's my best friend. Jody, the youngest, right, even chimed in and said, He's all our best friends, and we don't get into trouble at school. 
Interesting. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Jeff basically seemed like the coolest sensei, right? Hanging out with his students, going to movies, going out for ice cream. Oh. Uh-huh. And when it became obvious that Gary and June were going forward with the divorce, well, Jeff started hanging out more with the kids and at their home. And he even started dating their mother, who was 35. Oh, wow. Okay. She told friends that he was a good friend to her and he was there for the kids and provided emotional support for all of them. Okay. Seemed like anyone and everyone raved over Jeff and, you know, they were all like, he's just a good guy. He's great with the kids. We've heard it all before. However, what no one knew was Jeff was inappropriately touching and sexually abusing Jody for over a year. It started when Jeff would test his boundaries, like an accidental touch when stretching or helping him with his karate moves. When offering to teach Jody to drive, keep in mind he's 10, he had Jody sit on his lap and placed his hands on the child's laps. Basically your standard grooming accidental touching, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And then long hand placements and then followed by gifts. It then moved on to touching when they took their karate trips as they shared the same bed. The sexual assault happened almost every day, sometimes even twice a day. Another thing not many knew was Jeffrey was like in debt, okay? And he would write a lot of bad checks around town. And then he was also like selling products, but never having the products to fulfill, Oh. Yeah, so he never delivered on any of his promises. And this was all quickly coming to catch up with him. And he had a warrant out for his court date, okay? And that was coming up, and he was afraid that he was going to go to jail. And if he went to jail, well, he couldn't see Jody anymore. Right. On February 19th, 1984, Jeff picked up Jody and told his mom that they were going to go on a quick 15-minute drive. He just wanted to show Jody the new carpet he had been laying. Because he also does side jobs as carpentry work. <laughs> that does brother. not surprise me at all with this guy. Okay, all right. right. Well, 15 minutes came and went. Then hours passed by, and Jody still wasn't home. June called her brother, who was the deputy sheriff, and then she called a family friend, and they all drove the four hours to Port Arthur, which is where Jeff's relatives lived. They confirmed that, yes, Jeff and Jody were both there, but briefly, and they had already left hours ago. So, where was Jeff and Jody? The two were actually headed to Texas, to another relative's house. And then from Texas, they caught a bus headed to California. Jeff shaved his beard and dyed Jody's blonde hair to black, so they looked more like father and son. When they arrived at Anaheim, California, they checked into a motel And that's when Jeff raped the 11-year-old. This went on for 10 days until finally Jody was allowed to call his mom. Well, when that call came in, let's just say the local police were ready. They traced the call, and before you know it, the FBI were breaking down the door of the hotel room. Jody was on his way back to Louisiana. Jeff was taken into custody and waited for the Baton Rouge officers to come get him and bring him back. Now, at this point, the parents just think Jody was kidnapped by the karate teacher, right? They were about to find out what had really happened and what was going on in that motel room for those days. When Gary found out 
about his son Jody, he said, I'll kill that SOB. Gary became restless and started spending a lot of time at the local bar called the Cotton Club. It was during one of these visits Gary sees an old colleague from the news station. After a couple drinks, the guy mentions that Jeff would be arriving at the airport on March 16th. Now, a few different articles stated that he either got the time from the news guy or, as he's friends with the local officers, he found out from them. Either way, Gary knew when Jeff would be landing back in Baton Rouge. Right. The plane lands a little after 9 p.m., and Jeff is handcuffed and being escorted by the officers. He gets rushed past the waiting news crew and is walking down a corridor. There's a wall of payphones, and one is being used. The man is wearing a baseball cap and a pair of sunglasses. As Jeff passes by, the man on the phone, who is Gary, turns around and fires a single shot right into Jeffrey's head. The karate teacher drops to the ground, and Gary is rushed and immediately restrained. The officer, who is his friend, yelled, Son of a bitch! Why, Gary? Why'd you do it? Gary's reply, if someone did it to your kid, you'd do it too. True. Jeff Doucet died the next day at the hospital. Now, all of this was caught on film and became a media sensation. I remember seeing this as a kid, actually. I was like, whoa. It's always just been one of those images in my head. Okay. And the question started circulating. Was Gary a hero or a murderer? Gary was arrested and his friend put up the $100,000 bell. And just a quick side note, like, a lot of the townspeople were donating to that bell and to his defense fund way before there was ever a GoFundMe. Yeah. At the trial, we found out that other parents had pulled their kids out of the karate class as they said their children started acting different or just off. Mm. We hear from Jeff's lawyer that Gary was jealous of his relationship with his wife and kids. And actually, when arrested in California, Jeff said that this was all planned, and June was to meet him out there with the other kids. However, June said when he called, he told her that she needed to bring the kids and their transcripts to California, and she needed to do this if she ever wanted to see Jody again. She begged Jeff to bring Jody home as she was afraid she would lose custody of the children because, keep in mind, they were going through a divorce, right? Right, right. Also, I wanted to quickly mention, it took June four days to tell Gary that Jody was gone. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I'd be pissed. Yeah. And actually, speaking of Gary, he was talking to a friend on the payphone. So he was actually on a call, making a phone call, and he told his friend what he was going to do. The friend tried to call the police, like, quickly, you know what I mean? But it was too late. He just heard a gunshot and the line being disconnected. Wow. Gary had stated while awaiting trial, he didn't want Jeff to go on and do this to other kids. His attorney said it was a psychotic state and he couldn't tell what was right or wrong. The community was mainly on Gary's side, but there was a few supporters of Jeff. When it came to sentencing, the judge thought sending Gary to prison would be counterproductive, so Gary received five years probation and 300 hours of community service. Five years probation from straight up murdering the dude, shooting the guy in the head, wow. That's crazy. Gary had a stroke and passed away in 2014 at the age of 68. 
His obituary describes him as a man who saw beauty in everything. He was a loyal friend to all, always made others laugh, and a hero to many. Yeah. Jody went on to attend uh, Louisiana State University and became an activist. He served on the executive board for Men Against Violence. Upon graduation, he worked at the Victim Services Center in Montgomery County as a sexual assault counselor. Awesome. In 2019, Jody released a book called Why Gary Why? Remember, that was the question the officer yelled. The book description reads, Through his own incredible story of using his past for good by helping others, he shares how any reader who has had suffered great trauma can move on and not let the past define him or her. Now, in one article, he recalls a conversation with his mother, and I honestly hadn't even thought of it this way, but it makes so much sense. He said his mother asked him why he didn't include a lot of the stuff, like the the details of what happened to him, right? Right. And he stated he chose to leave that out because he didn't want to trigger another victim who was reading the book. But the main reason was he didn't want a pedophile to be reading his book like it was a penthouse letter. Right. That makes sense. That, like, broke me because that's something I've never even considered. Yeah. Yeah. In another interview, Jody said the following. I think for a lot of people who have not been satisfied by the American justice system, my dad stands as a symbol of justice. My dad did what everybody says they would do, yet only few have done it. Plus, he didn't go to jail. That said, I cannot and will not condone his behavior. I understand why he did what he did, but it is more important for a parent to be there to help support their child than put themselves in a place to be prosecuted. Fair. And um, just little side notes, like he uh, he does cooking videos. Jody? Yes, Jody does cooking videos. Or anytime he does a post or something, he says there's always more than one comment that comes in and says, your dad's a hero. Or sorry, what happened to you? But your dad's a hero. And like he's like, I just wanted to share my lasagna right, video. You know right. what I mean? Like everything <laughs> I have my um, own life now. I've, and I don't know about you guys yeah. when you're doing your stories, but like I always check the obituaries and read the obituaries yeah. and stuff. And seriously, um, I've said this numerous times. I'm a comment reader on any post regardless. And this is truly one of those posts where on his obituary, literally like, God bless you. You're a hero. You're a true American hero. Like hero, hero, oh. hero, hero. Mm. And so wow. I was just like, yeah, that can kind of be like a, a mind fuck just on that own. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he was yeah. just said in his last article, like I get what my dad did, but don't put yourself in that. Cause that could have been horrible. Like what if they didn't yeah. have a mother worst case scenario, you know what I mean? Right. And then you go to jail for murder. Right. Now your yeah. four kids are all affected, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. It's crazy. But another revenge story from me. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, well done. It's crazy. Dang. And I will post the video. All right. Uh, the video up from the airport? Yeah. Oh, geez. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, in the blazing heat of Nigeria near the Atlantic Ocean, a sailor mm-hmm. goes through his daily routine. He wakes up each morning and his wife makes him breakfast, and then he goes to the ocean to catch fish for his market. But this day was different. The current seemed perfectly still and the wind did not blow. 
The fisherman continued to cast his net, but it kept returning empty. As the day was going on, it appeared to be more and more of a bust for the day. But the man decided to cast his net one more time before going home. This time, though, there was a tug. The strength of the fish had surprised him, so he pulled even harder. After some time, his catch started to surface, but it wasn't a fish in his net. It was a beautiful woman. Her skin was the color of fertile soil, and even though she had just emerged from the water, her long black hair fell gracefully upon her face. She was the most beautiful being he had ever laid eyes upon. The man stood up in the small boat and bent over to grab her hand, but she made no effort to grab his in return. Do you not wish to be saved? He asked the mysterious woman in the water. Just then, a water snake swam up behind the woman, though she could not see it. In a panic, the man grabbed her hand and pulled her up to safety, but as he did, the boat simply flipped over. It was there in the water that he discovered that he was not dealing with a woman at all, because this woman had a red and white tail like that of a mermaid. As the man struggled to stay afloat in the water, he began to fall beneath the waves, but with his last breath he called out, Mamiwata, through the muffled water. The woman then turned in the water, grabbed the man, and carried him back to his boat. Once he was safe back in his boat again, the water spirit also climbed in the boat, and the fisherman sang to her, as that was the only offering he had to the water spirit. As she sat there, the snake arose from the water and gently wrapped itself around her neck and chest. Before the silent spirit jumped back into the deep water, she left behind her mirror and brush, signs of both fortune and doom. Her very presence is a sign of both goodness and darkness, either bringing good fortune like money or a deadly disease, usually through sexual intercourse with someone. The fisherman had heard usually those trans- uh, yeah. <laughs> The fisherman had heard all the stories growing up of her creeping in the dreams of men and sometimes killing them. But he had also heard the stories of her generosity, like when Mamiwata gives great gifts to women, such as fertility, love, and beauty. Then the fisherman heard a loud scream that penetrated his ears. He opened his eyes to find that he was now home in his own bed. Getting up, he rushed to his wife, who was screaming. What's wrong? he asked, with the machete in his hand, looking for the perpetrator. Put that down, she spoke, rolling her eyes. The fisherman's wife then showed him an envelope filled with enough money for them to leave the life of poverty that they currently lived in. He then closed his eyes and whispered the same song he had sung to the water spirit, for he knew that his dream of the Mamiwata was a blessing and not a curse. So now that we've heard a story about her, let's learn a little bit more about Mami Wata. I want to Is it any song? It was just a song, a song. Just a song. A sweet song. Okay. It was an offering. Oh, I would be so nervous. I would sing. I, we already <laughs> had this discussion, Eric and our friends, like just being put on the spot to name like your favorite band movie or song. I, Y'all, I just kind of. Oh, oh, no, I'd be oh, like, oh, I get oh. knocked down, but I get up again. <laughs> I hate that song. It would be like the song. Oh my god! The entertainment tonight. It should kill me. It'd be dumb. No, just you have to. He was giving her an offering, and that was the only offering he had was a song. Welcome to the Chumbawamba song. There you go. Tub thumping all the way. So now that we've heard a story about her, let's learn a little bit more about Mami Wata. 
First, yeah. we should clarify something about her name. It's a pidgin English word that comes from okay. mother water. Okay. It was most likely adopted during the slave trade, which is why she is not only highly venerated in Western Africa, but also in places like the Caribbean and certain areas of the southern U.S. She's usually described as resembling a mermaid, but extra. <laughs> By that, I mean that she often carries expensive like baubles, such as combs, mirrors, and watches with her. Oh, and she doesn't always have the mermaid tail. She can apparently magically grow legs if she wants to. Then oh. there's the snake. Pretty much every image of Mami Wata depicts her with a snake wrapped around her body, with its head resting between her breasts. The snake is a symbol of divination, and in this case, Mami Wata's ability to determine the future of the men she encounters, and whether mm -hmm. she should bring them good fortune or poor fortune. Most stories of her involve some weary sea traveler who comes across a woman who's combing her long, beautiful hair. With a dingle hopper. <laughs> with a dingle hopper. <laughs> and peering at herself in a mirror. Upon noticing the intruder, she flees into the water and leaves her possessions behind. The traveler then takes the items for himself. Later, Mami Wada appears to the thief in his dreams to demand the return of her items. But there's a catch. Should he agree, she further demands a promise from him to be sexually faithful to her. The agreement grants the man riches, but refusal to, re uh, to return the possessions or to be faithful to her brings the man ill fortune. She actually has a lot of devotees in Nigeria and the surrounding areas, in addition to the Americas. In Nigeria, her devotees typically wear red and white clothing, similar to the colors of her tail. These colors represent Mama Wati's dual nature. In Igbo iconography, red represents things like death, destruction, heat, and power, whereas white also symbolizes death, but it can also symbolize beauty, creation, new life, spirituality, water, and wealth. Some devotees will even wear a snake around their waist. Now, not only is she potentially responsible for people's wealth and luck, but she is also responsible for their health. If someone comes down with an illness that will not go away, Mamiwata is often to blame. The illness is evidence that Mamiwata has taken an interest in the afflicted person and that only she can cure them. She's even blamed for everything from headaches to sterility. Barren mothers will often ask Mamiwata to cure them of their affliction, but this comes with a price. You see, many say that Mamiwata herself is barren, so if she gives a woman that baby that woman inherently becomes more distanced from the spirit's true nature. The woman will thus be less likely to become wealthy or attractive. Despite the potential setback, shrines made in her honor of Mamiwata are often decorated in images of women with children who are conceived with the help of Mamiwata. So, if a beautiful woman emerges from the water and offers you good fortune in exchange for some sex... Maybe think twice about the offer because she can break yeah. a contract whenever she wants. I love her. Also, when Ooh. you said she carries around her treasures, like her I, baubles, yeah, her baubles and I stuff. I just it. like imagine her coming up out of the water, like, look at my stuff. Isn't, Isn't it, it neat? neat? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm very excited for I the new it. Little Mermaid. Too. <laughs> Although I should have played Ursula, and her name is Ariel. Oh my gosh. And, uh, yeah. Melissa McCartney has my career. McCarthy. Whatever. I don't even acknowledge her. <laughs> she has your career. <laughs> that bitch. <laughs> Talented bitch.
I know. Uh, well, anyway, uh, what have you got for us today, Sarah? So I have, uh, well, let me just jump in on this. All right, <laughs> Stacey Burns. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Stacey Burns was a popular figure in the lakeside community of Wolfboro, New Hampshire. Everybody would go to her house. She was like that house that all the kids went to play at. Everybody socialized at. It was just uh, her door was, it was like the revolving open door. She always had people there and it's just very welcoming. So her large colonial house sits on the main street of Wolfboro, a tight knit town with a population of just 600, 6,531 people but it would balloon to 25,000 people during the summer when tourists flocked to the picturesque postcard New England town. So it was like a, a tourist town. Summer towns. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of those out there in the East Coast that go from tiny yeah. to, to huge in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I'd be like, get out of my town. Anyway. <laughs> get out of my town. I'm <laughs> very protective. So Stacy was a school nurse at Carpenter Elementary School in Wolf- Wolfboro. She met her husband, Ed Burns, more than 20 years er- earlier when she was a student and he was a young merchant marine. Sounds like the start of a cool romance, right? Right. So Stacy and Ed married in 1992 and throughout their relationship, Ed worked as a merchant marine and had to spend months at a time out at sea for his job. I guess you could say he was a seaman. Anyway. <laughs> couldn't resist, well, could you? Could not I resist. couldn't. I couldn't. So while Ed was away, Stacy cared for their children and their family grew quickly. They ended up having five children in like a 10-year t- uh, time, time like, frame. While he was so. away? There's some questions here. <laughs> I know. No, I mean, he'd come home, they'd get busy, she'd have a baby, and he'd, yeah. Okay. Pretty, All right. so pretty they're, neat. They're stacked to the roof uh, with, with kids. All right. Uh, apparently. So according to Stacy's loved ones, her marriage to Ed was troubled. Ed himself stated that they would often have trouble adjusting after he would return from a long stint at sea. He said, we both had to adjust because we were both commander of the ship, if you will. And I found out that even when I was home, I was actually second in command. (laughs) Come on, we all know the women run the ship. (laughs) Right? And I'm like, come on, if she's like taking care of your five kids constantly, yeah, she runs the ship. She's running the ship, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She's the captain now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So even their live-in babysitter said she witnessed some increasing strain on Stacy and said, quote, it wasn't an ideal marriage for her. Um, he wanted to know what Stacy was doing at all times. And if she, if she wouldn't tell him the truth, he still wouldn't believe her. It, like He just didn't trust her at all. So, which is not good for a guy who's gone all the time. No. no. Yeah. However, it appeared their marriage even had deeper issues. By 2007, Ed's controlling behaviors had escalated, and he criticized Stacy incessantly about her appearance and her actions. He demanded sex from her. He burned clothes and accessories. He made derogatory remarks about her in front of others, and he accused her constantly of having affairs. So, Wow. Yeah, that yeah, sounds like a wonderful marriage. I know. So eventually, Stacy told Ed she wanted to separate. Like, weird. So this sparked anger in Ed, and he continued to be abusive towards Stacy. During one particular incident on July 29th, 2007, Ed entered Stacy's bedroom and stood over her, 
awaking her from sleep. He told her, quote, death before divorce. Well. Yeah. Well, just a little over a week after that incident, Ed angrily confronted Stacy again, accusing her of having yet another affair. According to reports, Ed yelled at Stacy and shoved her when she tried to call the police using the home phone. And he allegedly took away both of her phones and wouldn't let her call police, which is like, that's not going to stop her at some point. But right, yeah. So later that day, a judge granted Stacy a year-long restraining order against Ed. Um, and as part of the restraining order, Ed was also ordered to enroll in an alcohol abuse program. Stacy was also given sole custody of their children at this point. And the following month, Stacy officially filed for divorce. Ed was out at sea when she filed the paperwork, and he claimed he was completely shocked by the news, despite the fact that Stacy had already taken out the restraining order. <laughs> like, what? Pretty... Oh, Ooh, you're gonna divorce me now? I never saw that coming. Come on, baby. I'll right. treat you right. Come on. Come wow. on. So. Yeah, so on August 8th, 2008, exactly one year after the restraining order was issued, Stacy appeared in court and asked for uh, for it to be extended another year. She said she was fearful of what Ed would do if the restraining order was lifted, and the judge granted the, the order and ultimately decided to extend it for another five years. So over the next few months, Stacy actually started to kind of soften towards Ed, however, and she actually even allowed him to start seeing their children. They both voluntarily violated the restraining order on numerous occasions. Ed eventually returned to the court to request that the order be overturned. He stated that Stacy had allowed him to babysit their children and that they had taken their children to various outings and events during, together during the fall. The judge ultimately agreed to terminate the restraining order, citing that, quote, the frequency of the contact and the absence of the allegation of inappropriate behavior during these contacts suggests that the restraining order may expire. So, although Stacy and Ed were back in contact, they did not reconcile their romantic relationship, and their divorce was finalized by 2008. After splitting with Ed, Stacy began a relationship with a man named Jim Vitoom. Stacy and Jim met after their respective sons began playing hockey together. Jim reportedly fell for Stacy fast, but Stacy wasn't ready for a serious relationship. Apparently, Jim wanted to move into Stacy's home with his children and do like the whole Brady Bunch thing. But she was like, okay, slow your roll, dude. Like, I just got divorced. I need some space. <laughs> slow your roll, dude. <laughs> right? Like, oh, the man just wanted to be the Brady's. Uh, who doesn't? One bathroom. Yeah. Right? It's the dream <laughs> for real. Guy was an architect and everything. Come on. Jeez. <laughs> so while Jim claims the two were madly in love, Stacy ended up breaking up with him just a few months into their relationship. But they still remained friends because their kids had sports events and they would see each other quite often. And on May 8th, 2009, Stacy dropped off her three youngest daughters with Ed for the week or with her ex-husband Ed for the weekend. And that evening, Stacy went out to dinner with a, another local man. Mm. Well, that dinner led to a confrontation between her date and Jim Vatom, who, despite being dumped... He was waiting outside of her house that night when the couple returned from dinner. And he said he just, basically, he's like, 
she shouldn't be dating anyone. And I wanted to see what was going on. Okay. His, his direct quote was, I wanted to confront the two of them so I could ask her, what are you doing? You could say I was stalking her, but I was, I think I was just being a friend. You could say that. The term is stalking, but I like to say being a friend. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just being a protective friend. Okay, so, I mean, you're starting to see, like, these two men in her life both have kind of weird whatever. She knows how to pick them, yeah. Yeah. So, nevertheless, after that incident, I guess, Jim came over and they all watched movies with their kids. So, she, like, invited him over and they watched movies. And then he apparently left the house at 11 that night. And the children also could, like, confirm that he did leave. So, on the morning of May 10th, 2009, which was Mother's Day, since we, you know, just had Mother's Day, Mm -hmm. Stacy and Jim were supposed to take their two daughters to a lacrosse tournament. And Stacy and her daughter never showed up at the game. So, you know, Jim being the good friend, he drove over to her house. Well, the driveway was blocked by an ambulance and Jim feared the worst. He first thought that maybe Stacy had an accident and maybe she killed herself. Stacy's daughter then told him that Stacy had been stabbed multiple times early in that morning. Police surmised that the intruder entered the Burns' unlocked house while Stacy and her children were asleep. Then her 15-year-old son found her body the next morning. Yeah, the kids were like going to make her Mother's Day breakfast and they found their mom dead. So it's like, I just, I feel like it's such a strong like, it's just very in your face, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was made to make a point. Yeah, like, oh, it's just awful. So, and obviously this, like, just sent a shockwave through Wolfboro, and the whole community was just shocked by this. And, like, one of the close friends, her name was Peggy, she said, quote, whoever that creep is knew that those kids were sleeping in the house and that they were going to find her on Mother's Day. So Stacy's funeral was attended by more than 700 people and friends and as friends and family mourned, New Hampshire police were left to do the daunting task of finding out who wanted to kill the beloved mother of five children. So police interviewed those closest to Stacy, including the ex-husband, Ed, and her good friend, Jim. <laughs> good well, friend. yeah. Right. Yeah. So surprisingly, Jim had approached the police that morning insisting, quote, you've got to definitely look at me. You've got to clear me because I'm going to be his reasonable doubt. Eddie killed her. End quote. So. Well, well, yeah. So considering Ed's history of violent behavior towards Stacy, it was not a stretch for him to be considered a suspect. Throughout the investigation, detectives learned that Stacy and Ed last saw each other two days before the murder when Stacy dropped off their daughters. Although the two were co-parenting, Stacy was still having issues with Ed and he was not paying his share of child support. In fact, Stacy and Ed were due to appear in court over this issue just two days before she was killed. Um, Ed continuously denied involvement in Stacy's murder and claims that he was at a party in Boston the night she died. And he actually has an account backed up by a friend who has a video that proves where he was. In Boston. Okay. In Boston. So shortly after his death, her death, he moved into the home for about a year to help care for their children. And many people continue to point a finger at him, but he told police, you know, he had a solid alibi. Yeah. And so he was cleared. 
Jim also denied involvement, though it appears he was the last known adult to have seen Stacy before her death. Many felt that Ed was not the killer and that Jim seemed the most likely suspect, but Jim was never charged. And anything related to Stacy's murder, like he he wasn't even actually named a person of interest. So huh. this was in 2011, right? Okay. To this day, no arrests have been made in Stacy's case. And law enforcement officials in New Hampshire have declined to comment, citing that the ongoing nature of their investigation, like they're still working on it. But I find it so strange that they pretty much just dropped everything. Yeah, 12 years later, nothing's really happened here. Right. And I mean, they like they won't say why that they think Jim like was not a person of interest, but for some reason they're like, nope, nope, not our guy. But yeah, like I guess at, like as of now, the case is still open. They have no suspects. Her poor children just want to know what happened to their mom. Yeah. And like, I find it so strange with the crime scene that there's like nothing. All they can say, like they never print, like dusted for prints. They never found a murder weapon. And it was just like, well, the door was unlocked. Someone came in and killed her. Oh. End of story. So, like, yeah, it just, it's like so. It just sounds like I they don't, don't want to work on it. it. Right. It just seems so hard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, it's the weekend. Right. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Yeah. Right. Well, and interestingly enough, on July 18th of 2018, Ed Burns was arrested in Massachusetts after allegedly stabbing a man with a 10-inch knife in the back. Yeah, witnesses reported that the man and Burns were arguing when Burns threatened to stab him. But it's still, it's like the alleged stabbing. It's not like, yes, he stabbed someone, was charged for it, but he allegedly stabbed a man in the back. Allegedly stabbed somebody in the back with a 10-inch blade. All right. Yeah. And I mean, so I guess after the Stacy's kids sought to get a restraining order again after Ed, so he couldn't see the kids anymore, which I'm like, that's smart. Like, yeah. But I mean, yeah, there's just, I mean, nothing. So yeah. she was stabbed to death and nothing. So, yeah. Meanwhile, Stacy's children are left to wait and wonder. What if anything, like, they just are constantly like, what could we have done? Well, maybe lock your doors, but I just, so, and I mean, I know this is like a really fucked up way to turn, but it almost makes me wonder, like, did one of her kids do it? Well. I I, I mean, I I don't know. How old was the oldest? I don't know. Like, it didn't tell me the ages, but one of them was 15. And so they're all within that, like. They were all, clo- you know, they were all born within the 10 age. years. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, obviously, like, it looks like it's one of the guys, but, yeah. So, Stacy's murder still haunts the small town of Wolfboro. Her loved ones still hope to see justice in her case. If you have any information that could lead to the arrest of Stacy's killer or killers, please contact the New Hampshire State Police at the tip line at 603 223 Three eight five six. So yeah, no, I mean, I don't mean to be like pointing a finger at a, like a fifteen-year-old boy, but no, 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 yeah. There's just a 
Well, I mean, there's, there, just, there's a suspect that they won't call a suspect, and then there's a suspect who's got a good alibi, it sounds like. And but he seems like a total, like, the most likely person. The most but, likely person, but he's got an alibi, yeah, so. Yeah, which has, like, a time-stamped and dated video to prove it, you know? Yeah. I mean, So it, weird, though. There, there's always the whole, you know, maybe somebody was hired or whatever, right, but. Yeah. But I just, I'm like, how did this just get thrown to the bushes, like, it really did. And I feel, yeah. I feel like it was so pointedly her ex-husband, especially with the Mother's Day thing. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. That's really I, strange. Uh, uh, so bizarre. Anyway, I just, with Mother's Day and everything, I thought it was a good time to pull that <laughs> How one How appropriate. Out. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. <laughs> Well, good job, I hope, Sarah. I hope that leaves everybody warm and tingly. <laughs> God. Yeah, thanks so, for that. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. All You're right. welcome. <laughs> well, I think that that's about all for today then, is it? Yeah, that, that wraps I it up, I guess. Case. Yeah. All right. I, I mean, I didn't prepare anything else. So. All right. Well, in that case, then, yeah, let's say goodbye, everybody. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.